spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Looks like we really do have the rite of passage. It's episode 249 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. And the reason I say that is, yes, we're going to be talking about the passage again. For one reason, I mean, they keep saying yes. And why not? Because it's an awesome show. Second of all, you know that her name's come up so much on the show already. We're going to talk to her. Brianne Howie, who plays Shauna Babcock on the show. She's got a big episode coming up for episode three, so I definitely wanted to talk to her about that. She's got some really interesting things to say, too, that you're definitely going to want to hear if you're a fan of The Passage. Plus, it's a triple review week here on the podcast. It's been a double review week. Now, this is a triple review week. As far as TV shows are concerned, you're not going to want to miss my reviews of The Magicians, Punisher Season 2, Siren Season 2. It, there's just so much going on. We, we've got we've to start right now. What we're reading is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Dennis Hopeless, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Gotta love the sound it makes when you slide out that long box, or when you fire up the laptop or the tablet. Because whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, and I know you've been waiting for this if you're a Buffy fan. That's right, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, number one from Boom Studios, is finally here, written by the great Jordi Belair. Dan Mora on the illustrations, Rel Angulo on the colors, and Ed Dukeshire on the letters. Now, in case you were unaware before you read this, this is a reboot of sorts anyway. It goes back to the beginning. Buffy's 15 and she's still fairly new to her duties or her calling as she even calls it as the Slayer. Now, I might get a tad bit spoilery, spoilery here, which I don't normally do when we're doing what we're reading, but just a little bit. As far as what characters we're going to see anyway. We, we are going to see Xander and Willow in this issue, their friendship with Buffy doesn't really exist until she steps in to help them with something. That's as far as I'm going to go as far as spoilers are concerned. Now, something does happen when she confronts a vampire in this issue that doesn't seem quite right. Something's a little bit off. And we get to find out what that was a little bit later on in the issue. And that kind of sort of becomes the undercurrent of this first issue, which is very much an introduction to the story, you know, just in case you're not familiar with the characters, there's a little bit of an introduction work here, but it's not a complete introduction. It doesn't go into like Buffy's life story or, story or anything like that. You get a good insight into who she is, but there's not a whole lot of backstory there, which doesn't really seem needed, especially the way that this issue is constructed. Now, Buffy does want to be normal. You know, any teenager wants to have a little bit of a normal life, right? But she also kind of doesn't seem to mind her calling. She takes it in stride. Now, when she's, you know, when she's talking to G- to Giles, this it's a very interesting relationship and probably kind of what you'd expect with everything being so new and him trying to guide her along and her duties and things like that. And I mean, it's almost like a by the book and by the heart sort of situation as far as I, I can tell. Anyway, it's, it's, it's very push and pull, but you know, just, every mentor has their own style, right? So that that's going to be part of the ongoing story. That's pretty darn clear. Now, there's also a nice reveal at the end of this issue that will likely keep you coming back for the next issue, especially if you're a fan. But here's the beauty part. If you're not a fan at all, 
or well, I shouldn't say if you're not a fan at all. If you ha- if you've wanted to get into Buffy and you haven't really found a, a, an avenue into that yet, this is actually a great jumping on point for new readers and actually a great way to introduce a new generation to this story and to the fandom. I mean, everything, it doesn't happen exactly the way it did on the show as far as introductions are concerned. But I mean, there's, there's certainly a lot to love about the way these characters are presented. And Joss Whedon, of course, is a part of this as well. He did create Buffy and, you know, he's got a little bit of creative voice in there too. So I mean, if it wasn't right, I'm sure Joss would say, hey, let's not do that because it's not keeping in line with Buffy. Everything felt pretty authentic to me, even though it was a little bit new. And part of the fun of this issue to me was the detailed art by Dan Mora. I mean, it's it's absolutely amazing. I mean, the lines are so clean on this art. The action sequences really look like they're taken up a notch and there isn't even that there aren't even that many of them, but they left left it memorable as far as I'm concerned, it really makes this book that much more enjoyable to read when you've got Dan Moore's art in front of I mean, and, and the characters themselves are just so detailed. You bring in somebody like Dan Mora when you want your story to pop, especially when you know you've got a good script. And I think Buffy number 1 has that. Boom Studios, it's a tough job to reboot something like this. I think they've done a fine job. This is a poll for me. I'm going to jump on the Buffy bandwagon and see where it takes me. Coming up from Wonder Comics now that just came out this past week, it's Naomi, number one. Of course, Wonder Comics, the imprint of DC Comics. It's written by Brian Michael Bendis and David F. Walker. You want to talk about a powerhouse team there. Jamal Campbell on the art, also doing the cover too, by the way. Josh Reed on the letters. Now, I want you to think about something that you love so much that you're obsessed with it. I'm not talking about a person. I'm talking about something that you love. Maybe it's comics. Who knows? I mean, you live it and you breathe it. That's how much you love it. Now, for Naomi, the title character, this is Superman, the Man of Steel. And not in a creepy, stalkery kind of way. She's just fascinated by Superman, the man himself, and what he does and where he's from and things like that. So, if that's not enough, though, she kind of lives in a small town, small city on the coast, Nothing ever happens there. It's one of those very, you know, you grow up and you want to get out of there because there's really nothing going on sort of deal. So when Superman, by the way, a little, little bit of spoilers here as well. I can't talk about this book without spoiling it a little bit. So I do want to give you a little bit of a warning there before I say this. Superman actually crashes down in the middle of a battle in right in the middle of this town And it's a big, big deal. It's all over the place. week later, they're still talking about it. I mean, you'd think that'd be great for Naomi, right? Except for the fact that she kind of missed it. I mean, when he showed up, she missed it. And think about that. that The one thing you love the most shows up and you're not there to see it. You're like the only one that's not there. Now, there is an unexpected turn here that unravels a completely different mystery about the town that comes from this event. Now, nobody seems to want to talk about it or even know that it happened, but Naomi just kind of won't let it go. She she has to know what this was. For some reason, it just seems very important to her. Now, when she thinks that she may have tracked somebody down who might know what happened, she kind of ends up finding some very significant piece of information, and that's what makes this story interesting. The truth is actually where the intrigue lies in this story. And it might seem like a simple and a trivial thing, but it's really not because, you know, sometimes a good mystery will drive a story 
really far. And there are uh, there are a few mundane things that actually happen in this issue, and that's not a criticism, by the way. That's not me saying that the book was boring. It wasn't. It was just like, remember how brilliant Seinfeld was for its simple moments, right? Certain things like them just sitting in the coffee shop and talking could be interesting, or something interesting would come out of it. That's very much how this book felt to me, was that something simple led to something more vast and actually ended up adding to the story and actually added to the foundation of the characters themselves and how they interact with each other. It was an important thing that could easily be tossed to the side, but wasn't in the story, and it worked. Now, another thing that really kept my attention was the art in this book, which was not only amazing, but there was such a wide array of it. I mean, there are so many different varying grid patterns. You had the nine-page panel, you know, you had the nine-panel page, you had full-page spreads, you had separated, pan- there were panels all over the place at certain points, and again, that's a compliment. I really was kept on my toes, locked in visually with this very unique way of laying things out, and it made it, again, not boring and very interesting. So you're giving me good writing, but you're also giving me a varying art style that a lot of books sometimes attempt to do, but not well enough. This one executes it to where every time you turn the page, you don't know what you're getting, and I think that that's great. I love regular panel spreads, too, don't get me wrong, but every now and then to shake something up like this, it, I think it, it was ex- whatever they were trying to do, it worked, that's for sure. The writing also seemed very true to life as well, and it managed to kind of capture the teenage world and the spirit without it being stereotypical or overly annoying, which it can be depending on how things are presented, especially since these comics in Wonder Comics are meant for a sort of a younger audience. This is something you could absolutely enjoy as an adult. When I say younger audience, I don't mean kids. I'm talking like middle school, you know, teens, stuff like that. This book is definitely perfect for that age group, but as an adult, I found myself enjoying it as well. So Naomi, number one, going to add that to the pull box. Love it when we have a double pull week, a couple of really good books that you should be going to check out. That's going to do for what we're reading up next. Yep, let's get things moving. It's a triple this week in Geek Tame, and our first review, Marvel's Punisher Season 2, is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Simone Missick from Marvel's Luke Cage, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. We could see that skull vest for the final time because it's time to talk about Season 2 of Marvel's The Punisher on Netflix. Maybe not for long on Netflix, but let's let's not think about that right now. Let's just talk about Season 2 with plenty of spoilers up ahead. I will put the cards on the table right now. I'm always honest with you. I did not get through all of the episodes of the season. So I'm going to talk about this in more general terms anyway. It's not like I was going to sit here and read you a bedtime story or anything and let you just recap the entire season for you because you've either seen it or you're in the process of watching it now. So I certainly don't want to just go ahead and repeat everything for you. So I just want to talk about the things that I liked and what I didn't like about the series. And and there is plenty of both. So here we go. Let's just start out with the one positive that I think absolutely everyone who watches this show can agree on, and that is John Bernthal was born for this role. The range he brings to Frank Castle is absolutely unbelievable. Not just the ruthless Punisher, this killing machine, and the way that he portrays that, but also the soldier, the emotional Frank Castle, the the kind of just every man Frank Castle that we see come out 
every now and then, like when he's playing three-card Monty with Amy, who we'll talk about here in just a second, in Madani's in Madani's apartment. That's, that was just kind of an everyman moment for him, and he gets frustrated while he's playing. He doesn't he doesn't really understand why, you know, thinks she's cheating and stuff like that. And it's just the way that he can portray every side of this character when it's easy to see the Punisher and only see him as the killing machine, right? But what we're seeing is is a wide range of a guy that, you know, lost his family not too long ago and and fought for his country not too long ago and just thrown into a life where at the beginning of this season, he just wanted a normal life. He, he found Beth in the bar. You can actually go read my review of the first episode of the season at downandnerdypodcast.com where I was all in with Frank and Beth ending up together. I, I was absolutely all in on that. I felt like they got ripped away pretty abruptly early on in the season, and then we just kind of didn't get back to it, really. At least not to the point that I got to. Anyway, didn't really get back to it. So, I I don't know. I I understand that there's more to Frank than, you know, his relationships. I know that there's some stuff there with Karen Page, and maybe she's the one that, that he should really end up with in the end, or the one that he wants to anyway, or the one that would make him want to try Maybe is the best is the best way to put it, but it just seems like Frank realizes in this season who he is and who he's going to be, and that's the Punisher. It's almost a very similar theme to Daredevil's last season, where you know he just realizes Matt Murdock realizes, hey, Daredevil's just a part of who I am, and that's just the way it's going to be. But this on a little bit more of an extreme scale, I would say. But we get to see. The Punisher be very unpunisher-like at times. Where he he was, there was one time where he was questioning someone, and once he got what he wanted, you thought that's it. He's going to kill this dude, and he didn't. He walks away, and and that was Amy's influence on him, the kid's influence on him, and that she made him realize, you know, other people have families too, and that's something that's very key for Frank is family, especially kids. You saw what happened when they when they found that child pornographer, and he really just... Yeah, but he doesn't kill him either. He doesn't, burns it down to the ground, but doesn't kill him either. So he's very protective, and seeing that protective side of Frank, it's not an evil that comes out. It's the protector that comes out, which is still scary as hell, don't get me wrong, but at the same time, it's it's very different. And he seeing these different sides of him, I think, was really my favorite part of this season. It's not like we haven't seen these sides before, but I mean, it just, I felt like they were really, really on display and something that was really, really, really well done in this entire season. Uh, Amy still annoyed the hell out of me. If I'm being honest, I mean, very ungrateful in the beginning. That kind of turns around. I get that she's a kid and maybe I'm supposed to be annoyed with her. And I think that maybe that's the brilliance of everything. And she certainly does learn as she goes and she certainly matures quickly enough. And so I, I think that, that's a character that once I watched past the first episode, I started to like a little bit more or at least understand that this is how I'm supposed to feel about this character. But one thing that we get in this season is a lot of strong female characters. I thought Agent Madani was actually done much better in this season than in last season. I mean, she's a little bit more... She's a little bit more off her game. She's a little bit more rattled because of what happened at the end of season one where she gets shot in the head by Billy Russo, right? And then she has to lie about it. So it's almost like she's compartmentalizing what happened to her 
for so long and that she just could not handle it anymore. As a matter of fact, you see, you see her in that meeting with Curtis where she kind of unloads on this, on this dude that eventually ends up befriending Billy later on in the season. You see her kind of unload him and say, you know, just because I wasn't over fighting war doesn't mean I haven't seen bad shit too. And you just, and that's when it almost started to release from her. And, you know, once you open those floodgates, it's hard to close them. So I think that's kind of almost when the healing kind of really started because we see in a quick little flashback where they told her, look, this is what you're going to say what happened. I don't care what happened. This is what you're going to say. Because, you know, that's just the kind of thing that happens from time to time, especially when you're talking about Homeland Security. But that wasn't healthy for her mentally. And we get to see that play out a lot this season. But even she starts to really get it together. So I think Agent Madani, and of course she gets, you know, she gets what she wants at the end of the day with Billy, right? So, and I'll talk about that here in just a second as well. But there is one thing that I didn't like from one of the female characters that I thought they could have done more with, and that was Dr. Krista Dumont. And and I understand, you know, she's Billy Shrink, and she played a really key role early on in the season. But I kind of got the vibe, right, that she was going to end up, you know, the whole Florence Nightingale thing was going to happen, and she was going to end up, if, if not being with Billy, at least hooking up with him. And that did happen. And I'll be honest, I was disappointed at that because I feel like that's, that's a trope, right? And that's a that's an easy way out. Doing the whole, you know, doctor falls in love with her patient sort of thing, and the whole, you know, they have shared pain, blah blah blah. It that seemed a little lazy to me, man. If anything, it would have been, made me happy. You set me up for that. You think they're gonna hook up, and then she backs him off. She doesn't do that. He doesn't kill her either, but she backs him off, and it's more of a she's just. She just really wants to see him get better because of her oath that she took as a doctor, right? As a as a psychiatrist. That's what she does. So she finds the strength to move past her stuff that she's dealing with and just do what she does. So I feel like there was, while there were a lot of strong moments for women in this series, that's where it kind of pulled back a little bit. I mean, I know that some stuff happens later on in the season that kind of props her up a little bit more and she gets investigated by Madani anyway so that there's a great push and pull there and she definitely has her strong moments and it's not her fault per se it was just the way that the character was written and portrayed I thought that you know you didn't have to do that and you did it that's the thing that kind of upset me a little bit but I mean the story as a whole I thought the way that they brought about Jigsaw and then the way they, they presented him is very, very damaged mentally and physically early on and how he tries to deal with slash not deal with this. And the thing that I think I liked the most about Billy Russo was there was a line where he's confronting Curtis in a parking lot. And he says, up here, pointing to his head, we're still brothers, so this is hard for me. And that's when it hit me how great this was because I was kind of on the fence and I wasn't sure I was digging how they were going about the whole jigsaw thing. Then I heard that line, and I'm like, that's the point right there. That's where it clicks. That's where I'm supposed to feel a little something for him. That quickly dissipates, of course. But, you know, you made me just for a second drop my guard. And I think that was the whole point of Billy Russo, is that you drop your guard for a second, and look what happens, because he is still a dangerous and damaged individual even before 
what Frank and Madani did to him in season one, never mind now. So that's something you quickly remember. But speaking of Curtis, man, it was good to see Curtis back, wasn't it? And I so didn't want anything to happen to him in the season. When he almost when we almost lost him last season, I was like, come on, because Curtis is the good dude, right? He's running the support group. He's trying to get people and soldiers back on their feet on their feet. And I respect the hell out of this guy for the character he is and what he does. And it looks like he's finding happiness. He's got a girlfriend now. I just so didn't want anything to happen to him. He was one of my favorite characters in season one. Definitely carried that over into season two. And you see he's still got this he's still got the soldier in him now. You don't want to you don't want to mess with Curtis. He might only have the one leg, but you don't want to mess with him because he can still run with Frank a little bit. I mean, Frank's still very protective of him. He could, he could still run with him. That's for sure. Here's the other thing, though. Did we need a second storyline in this season? I feel like the whole Billy Russo thing would have been enough. But then you're dealing with Amy and these pictures that she has of of guys kissing at a funeral and this this church who is very much in jeopardy of that getting out and that could, you know, dismantle their following. And then you've got John Pilgrim, who is your preacher bad guy that you see in this season. And while he is a again a good character and and very strong and very much a formidable foe, even for Frank Castle. I mean, even the shootout at the sheriff's station early on, I thought that that was a great, intense scene. But I'm not sure we needed this storyline, and we do abandon it quite a bit during this second season. There's a time where it's like, oh, well, Billy needs to be dealt with, so let's shelve this. There's a few episodes where I don't remember seeing Amy at all. And it just seems like you set me up for this in the beginning, and then you go away from it for so long before you come back and start to kind of try to deal with it again. And I understand that why you do that, but, I mean, you're giving me flashbacks, and you're really trying to lay a groundwork here, and then you just forget about it for a while. I just, uh, I don't know that that was absolutely necessary. So, uh, again, there there's plenty to like about this. I think just watching this for John Bernthal and everything that he can do as Frank Castle is enough for me. I'm not sure I need much more than that. I'm watching for him and everything else as a bonus anyway. But in this second season, when it's focused, it's really, really good and compelling. But when it's not, even I found myself starting to lose focus and wondering, okay, do I watch one more or do I go do something else and come back to it? I found myself doing the same thing, wanting to watch this, that the show was doing to me. I don't know if this was a subliminal thing or not. But when something's good, like when I was, I hate to compare the two again, but when I watched the last season of Daredevil, I did not want to tear myself away. No matter what was going on, I wanted to keep going and just power through that entire season because I was so locked in and compelled on everything that was going on. And even the, even that had a little bit of a dueling storyline going on as well, but it flowed together so nicely. There was no flow together with the storylines that were really at play here and Punisher Season 2. So while I didn't think this was a failure, I didn't think it was a huge success either, I think, you know, we sort of ride the middle with Season 2 of Punisher. With viewership being reportedly down 40% too, not sure we're going to see a third season, even though you start to see the creators come out and say, yeah, we've got plenty of plans for Season 3, and let's get Kingpin and Daredevil. And it's like, yeah, that would all be nice, fellas, but I don't think that that's really what's going to happen. So I did enjoy it if this is the end. I'd hate to see 
Frank Castle go. I would like to see him as full Punisher from here on out and see where the story takes us. But I do feel like this is the end. And while it wasn't perfect, I think at least you got your title character 100% right and gave us a faithful adaptation of that. And to me, that's enough. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review slash recap of The Punisher's Season 2. Up next, we're not done. Let's talk about The Magician's Season 4 premiere. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Jay Taylor from The Magicians, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Magic is back, but nobody remembers who they are, so let's remind them with the Season 4 premiere of The Magicians, our spoiler-filled review happening right now. So here's kind of the who's who. You have Katie, who is a detective named Sam. Kind of interesting that Katie is a cop. Also, we have Margo, who is a fashion editor named Janet. No surprise there. The one I think I love the most so far is Penny, who is DJ Hansel. He's very chill, very relaxed, very holistic type dude, but a very very popular DJ. And then you have Josh, who is an Uber driver. You also have Quentin, who's an English professor named Brian. We also have Julia, who might be one of the other interesting ones because she actually ends up as a new student at break bills. Now, this is one of the things that's really, really interesting about this first episode. And that's, there was a lot about Dean Fogg. In this episode, believe it or not, that's not really what I expected, especially with us being so pissed off at him from last season. But follow me on this, because one of the first things we find out is that it's Dean Fogg that brought this new Julia to break bills and, by the way, is protecting her because she's not doing well on the tests or anything like that. But he says, you know, let's keep her around and see how she does. And part of that is... It really seems like, especially when he's talking to her, that he's trying to right the wrong of kicking her out of break bills in the first place. It's almost like he he feels responsible, at least partially, for all the bad things that happened to Julia over the course of her life and over the course of these past seasons. And, And I think that's pretty admirable. I'm like, you know what? Maybe Dean Fogg is finally making amends here. But that's not all we find out about Dean Fogg. Apparently, he's the one responsible for everyone's new identities. And before you get upset about that, these are protection spells meant to protect them out in the world where the monster is sort of lurking. Now, clearly, we see with the whole Quentin and Brian thing and the monster kind of, you know, almost kidnapping Brian or at least holding him against his will while the monster goes out and flays people that that's not really going to work, but that's really not something that Dean Fogg knows at the moment, or at least we don't think he knows anyway. But let's let's move forward a little bit here, because it seems like Dean Fogg is really trying. And, it, you know, he's checking in on Alice. She's still in prison in the library. He can't do anything for her. just seems like he's trying to do good for everyone and make amends. So at least he's got that going for him. I'm not as mad at him as I was. Let's just put it that way. Now, back to the new identities. Now, Sam slash Katie is kind of the first one to find out that something is up because one of her cases leads her to a group of hedge witches. Yes, sounds familiar. Follow me on this because it's important. Now, that ends up leading her to Janet slash Margot because what she does is she finds an obscure, obscure comic book which basically tells everyone's 
life story. So she ends up tracking Janet down, and then they also end up tracking down Penny and Josh. Now, one thing I love that they did in this episode is they could have spent plenty of time on, you know, rounding up each individual character, right? They didn't waste any time at all. They didn't show us how they round them up, nothing like that. They just cut to it. They're all in a room, and they're all going to try and figure out what's going on, even though the protection spell seems to be doing its job of protecting because there are things that are happening around Katie that are trying to keep her from talking about this, you know, like like lights falling down or, or just everything going pitch black and her spilling coffee and all this other stuff. So clearly the protection spell is trying to keep her from spilling the beans on this or at least figuring it out. Now, here's the deal. They're, they're trying to figure out what's going on and they run into someone very, very familiar, but I'll get to that in a second because I want to talk about Alice in library jail. The fact that she ran, runs in, her not her cellmate, but the person in the cell next to her, is actually Santa Claus. Yes, Saint Nick. How very magicians is that? And Saint Nick has a very different story. Let me tell you that right now and how he ended up in the library in the first place. Now, that kind of takes a dark turn after that because Alice actually tries to commit suicide, but it's her way of trying to find a way out of her cell, you know, get out of there, kind of get the lay of the land. And obviously she heals up and we find out that the library has big plans for her and that they think she could be the most powerful magician that the order has ever had and all of this other stuff. And there's so much they can, that they, that she can teach others and, you know, kind of lead the way for the future of magic, but they kind of think that she might hate magic too. So they're going to give it a little bit of time. Now, Alice has a plan. Let's just keep it that way. Clearly Alice is hatching something here and hopefully it's sooner rather than later. I don't want to see her in library jail for too much longer, but it does feel like we're getting back to a little bit of season one, Alice though. I remember talking to Olivia Taylor Dudley about that at San Diego Comic-Con. It did kind of feel like season one, Alice a little bit with some season two, Alec Alice mixed in, as well. So I did really, really like that. And I'm not sure where this whole most powerful asset thing is going to go, but I have a feeling that the library isn't the only one that's going to be interested in what Alice has going on. Here was one of the most interesting parts of this episode and something that actually made me cheer despite hating her at certain points in the show. Marina is back. She's alive. I don't know how she's alive, but she's the leader of these hedge witches. And they go to her for help figuring out what's going on, they being the group, Sam, Janet, DJ Hansel, and so on and so forth, trying to figure out what's going on with them. And she's actually trying to rip her way through this protection spell to find out what their real identities are. No explanation for why Maureen is back. No explanation for what's going on other than she's here. And I'm happy about it, especially after what happened with, especially what what happened with Reynard. I'm just happy that she's back. But, Ember is also back, too. Now, Ember thinks that Janet is actually High King Margo. There's something going on in Fillory. We have no idea what it is. But Ember is being Ember. If you're a fan of the show, that's a perfect explanation for it right there. Wants her to fix a problem that's in Fillory and actually ends up sending her there at the end of the episode. She has no idea what Fillory is. She thinks it's a fictional place. She has no idea where she's going, what's going on. It looks like something's following her. I'm freaking out. I want to make sure that Margo slash Janet's okay. So she's basically on her own at this point. I don't know if she talked about break bills to any of the other people in the group, but right now she's on her own. She might have to figure things out 
on her own. But at least she'll probably be safe from the monster because the monster is just really creepy and and absolutely very childlike, which Hale Appleman described the monster as when I was chatting with him at, at, at Comic-Con as well. It's just very creepy, and with a flick of the wrist, almost like a snap of Thanos' finger, he just can slice a throat right open for what seems like no reason whatsoever. I mean, apparently the difference between Sprinkles and Jimmy is very, very important to this monster, and just slicing people's neck open are just worth it. Now, the monster seems to know who everybody is and is trying to shelter Brian slash Quentin from that so when he kills them, it won't hurt as bad. So he, for some reason, he has this affinity for Quentin, slash Brian and we don't really know what that is yet I don't think but I'm hoping that we will kind of see that unravel a little bit there was so much that seemed like it was going on in this episode didn't feel overwhelming though we didn't really dig too deep into these new identities either I thought that we might get a little bit of that in the beginning but again this is a waste no time kind of show it's like we know that you want your original characters that you love back. So we're just going to start right off jumping into, okay, they're trying to figure out what's going on because clearly they know something is going on. But I love the fact that Marina was brought back into the whole mix. And I'm interested to see what kind of a Marina we have and if she has any memory of who they were and what's going on. and and, and Or is she kind of, a, or is it almost like an, an alternate timeline type of situation where even she doesn't know what's going on. What is Ember doing, sticking his nose in what's going on in the whole thing? And how the hell is Margot slash Janet going to survive in Fillory? I love the fact that the patch game was back early on in this episode, though. She cannot escape that eye patch, can she? Summer Bishel might actually have to go permanent eye patch at this point. She's got to be used to it. She makes it look good, and that's all that matters, right? That's a hard thing to do making an eye patch look good. But, man, the first episode of season four of The Magicians was crazy in everything that I wanted it to be. This show does not miss a beat. It doesn't have filler. And it never, never, never seems to disappoint. Every season has must-see episodes from start to finish. And that is what I've loved about this show from the beginning and probably why it got that early season five renewal. You want more details on that? Go to downandnerdypodcast.com and check that out, the article that I posted earlier in the week. This is why I love the magicians, the interesting characters, the amazing performances given by them, and the fact that this show never misses a beat and takes every episode that it has and makes it important. And I'm glad that they do that. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review slash recap of the season four premiere of The Magicians. Up next, another review slash recap, this time season two of Siren. Let's talk about that first episode next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is William Powell from Siren on Freeform, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Feels good to be back in Bristol Cove. We're going to be talking about the season two premiere of Siren from Freeform. A lot of spoilers ahead, so if you haven't had a chance to watch the episode yet, this is your fair warning for that. Going to be kind of a recap and review. And one word that I can use to describe this episode is awkward. There are a lot of awkward moments in this episode, whether it be with Ben and Maddie when they finally meet up. Rin is actually has a job at Helen's gift shop, which I think is hilarious 
and you get to see her interacting with customers too, by the way, it's really, really funny. And so, and then when, when she sees Ben and Maddie for the first time, that's a little awkward, but it becomes less awkward because they're dealing with something very, very serious, which I'll get to in a second. But something that was also very awkward, but ended up being a very touching moment. Rin was walking through the woods and runs into Xander. Now, how Xander's freeing out on his own, I mean, we haven't really covered that in detail yet, so we will. I'm sure we'll get to that in a future episode, but it's basically Xander apologizing for what he did to Rin's sister. And Rin basically is like, hey, you know, in the ocean, we let it go. We move on. We What's done is done sort of thing. And she doesn't necessarily forgive him, but she doesn't condemn him either. But then again, that is when something very, very serious happens. What's the the basic theme of this season seems to be there's an oil company, or at least we think it's an oil company, that's sort of mapping the ocean floor to find a good place to drill, and the sonic pulses are causing a ton of trouble for life in the ocean. Not just the fish, not just the sea lions, but... Yep, the mermaids as well. So several mermaids actually flee to the surface, which leads everyone to act really, really fast. They actually lose one of the mermaids. And when actually when Rin goes in the water, she sees a body that was there. And they actually save one of the lives of the mermaids that gets washed up on shore. Well, it turns to turn come to find out that there were quite a few more that ended up on shore, and they ended up at Helen's place. No no wonder, because it seems like the mermaids sort of gravitate to her. I don't know if they realize that she's one of them as well. You know, they, they smell everybody. So I'm sure that, you know, the whole sense of smell sort of leads them to her. And, you know, again, that was awkward too, the whole situation with, with Rin coming back to them and, you know, confronting the then leader. But it seems like everybody's now bowing to Rin. So is Rin the new leader? We haven't really gotten to that yet, but, you know, they find a safe place for them for now. You don't want them to be found out. That's for sure. But they, they have to figure out what's going on with these sonic pulses because it's definitely affecting more than just the mermaids, especially if they had to flee their home. Now back to the awkward, the fact that Maddie's mom is back after months and months of being gone. And that's awkward between her and Maddie, even though Maddie sort of picks her up and everything. So it seems like it's okay. But then it's not... I mean, Dad seems okay with it. So Dad's happy to have Mom back, but Maddie's kind of on the fence about the whole thing. So it's a, it's a very awkward and very delicate situation for them right now. I mean, as it should be. Her mom's been gone for a while. She, you know, it turns out that she was an addict, so that had something... To do with it, we haven't we weren't actually told what she was hooked on or anything, but that looks like that's going to be part of the story. And we know that Ben's still dealing with the effects of the siren song as well. So, I mean, we talked about that being an addiction when we talked to him at San Diego Comic-Con. So maybe we'll see a little bit of more, more of that play out so that Maddie would kind of have it on both sides of her life, even though things are not great with Ben in this episode either that and that's the hard part for me because I thought that their relationship was a great one and I hated to see that get fractured it's still definitely fractured but it doesn't seem fractured beyond the point of repair because they're certainly working together on what's going on with the mermaids and what's going on with this whole sonic pulse thing so when the chips are down they're definitely working together and they definitely still care about each other too that's the thing because we get to see that you know Maddie's dad finds out that 
the body of the man who kind of drowned himself there at the end of the season as a result of the siren song. They apparently found something in his brain during the autopsy, and now Maddie's worried that the same thing could be happening to Ben because Ben's head's not right. You see when he does the the whole rock climbing thing, that gets that throws him off. He hurts his shoulder. It's a big deal. Something's wrong with Ben, and we're not seeing the total scope of it yet. And that's going to be a really, really big part, I think, of what's going on. Now, here's the other thing, though. Uh, we have to figure out what's going on with these other mermaids. And one of them, and this is going to be a problem. I know this is going to be a problem. One of the mermaids that comes to shore happens to be the daughter of Rin's sister who died. Xander's out and about. He's going to be coming into contact with them at some point. I'm not saying that this girl knows who killed her mom, but I'm just saying it's... It's good. Rin can say that they're moving on all they want, but somebody, one of those mermaids still remembers who did that. And I don't know if they're going to be cool with Xander just be walking around. And once the daughter finds out, you know, you find that somebody kills your mom. Ooh, that's going to be a force to be reckoned with, I have a feeling. But Xander has someone that seems like he's kind of, she's kind of interested in him, or is she playing him because she's an agent who's kind of tracking him? At the moment, we don't really know her story yet, but you know, she seems charming enough, so she certainly worked her way into his good graces, that's for sure. I'm sure that he he enjoys the attention, but it seems like there's a few different things going on here. But that reveal at the end that Rin's sister's daughter is part of this group not only ups the ante for what might happen with this group once they've run into Xander or once they, you know, come in contact with humans as a whole because they they can't be fans right now, basically, for what they've been doing to their environment. But it also adds to the emotional impact of the whole situation when it comes to Rin. Rin, who's trying to adapt to this new life and adapt to maybe being on her own, and now this is thrown into the mix. But she also, you see her jump into that motherly and leadership type of role. She won't leave them. She won't even sleep because she needs to make sure they're taken care of. Now, Helen's doing her part as well, and I know that she'll play a big role in this, but that's where we're at, and it just seems like the drama has been taken up even more of a notch because how were they going to move on from the mystery of the mermaid in season one to actually having to put together an interesting story in season two, and they've done that because they've added a different element to this, and they've added another level of emotion to the whole deal. If the sister thing last season wasn't enough, this certainly, I think, raises the bar a little bit there. Plus, you've got Maddie and her family drama, which is going to be a big part of this as well, because Dad lost his job. He lost his badge, and he hasn't told her that yet. So you've got Dad losing his badge, Mom's back, her boyfriend Ben is you know, kind of a head case right now, and they don't know if there's something wrong with his brain or not. So I wouldn't be surprised if Rin and Maddie are huge focuses of what are of what are going to be going on this season. But I mean, there's the strong women on this show and the great performances that they give are definitely able to carry something like that. I mean, the whole thing that's going on with Xander is interesting, but I'm not locked in on that right now. I'm wondering if that'll be a part of the larger story with what's going on with this. I'm putting it in air quotes, oil company. Because I don't know that we're there yet knowing that that's what it is. You can't, this could be military, could be a whole bunch of other things as well. So we're just sort of unraveling the beginning parts of the story, but we got a nice couple of tidbits 
in this first episode of season two. I'm still loving Siren. I still think it was a sleeper hit last year. I think it will continue to be that this year, and I'm glad to see the fandom growing as well. So good for Siren fans for sticking around. And we'd love to know what you think of the season two premiere as well. Tweet me at Down and Nerdy757. Tweet the show. Let me know what you think. That'll do it for my spoiler-filled review slash recap of the Siren season two premiere. Take a deep breath because up next, yep, still have some nerd news to talk about, and we'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer Tom King, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. A little bit of an overhaul happening at DC Comics this week. Let's talk about it. It's time for nerd news. And I want to deal with this headline here for a second. And that's DC Comics lays off 3% of its staff and employees. Now, I think that's an unfair headline, and I'm going to tell you why. Now, first, this was all reported by The Hollywood Reporter, and I'm not necessarily throwing any shade at anybody at The Hollywood Reporter, but what I'm saying is you see a headline like that and you're thinking a big number, right, because it's DC Comics, and they probably have a ton of employees, and you don't want to see one person lose their job, right? But when you see something like 3% of a workforce, you think that that's a giant number. What it was is it amounts to about seven employees out of the 240 that actually work for DC Comics. So I want to make that very clear. I thought that that was a little bit misleading, and I'm certainly not defending DC Comics either. I just thought that was misleading because, you know, you see something like that, especially in this day and age in the world, and you you think that now seeing 10% of the workers laid off at Warner Brothers Consumer Products, that's a little bit bigger of a number because 10% just jumps off the page at you. And again, while that wasn't thousands of employees either, it's still pretty significant. And that actually works in... To this whole thing. Now, there was a headline earlier this week. I won't, again, name names, but saying that, you know, Dan DiDio was going to be out as publisher, possibly Jim Lee as well. That is not happening. They will be sticking around. Who will? Who was laid off, a few of the big names were Senior Vice President of Trade Marketing, John Cunningham. You have Vice President of Consumer Marketing, Eddie Chanel, and Senior Vice President Art Director, Mark Chiarello, who was with the company for almost 30 years, if I remember right. So what this is, is it's they say they're getting back to their publishing roots and they're restructuring things a little bit. And it looks like, according to The Hollywood Reporter, things are going to be divided into three areas now. You've got editorial, product, and production and manufacturing. And then the new arm, it looks like, is publishing support services, which is it's it's brand new. It's going to handle sales, marketing, and promotion of DC Comics. This also moves DC Collectibles to the aforementioned Warner Brothers Consumer Products toy division, so they won't have to worry about that over DC Comics anymore. Now, DC Comics is owned by Warner Brothers anyway, so it's not like everybody's not swimming in the same pool here. But, I mean, if we're facing facts, you know, Rebirth was a very big deal for DC Comics. It breathed new life into the line. It brought new readers in. It told some really amazing stories and continues, really, to tell some amazing stories. But you've got a lot of imprints that you're working with now. With the relaunch of Vertigo. You've got Wonder Comics. You've got Bendis's Jinx World that you've got working. You've got Black Label. You've got Zoom, DC Zoom and DC Inc. that's going to be going on here soon. There is a lot going on here. So it's not at all really surprising that there is a bit of a restructuring because there's a lot to take in here and there's a lot that you need to pay attention to. So I'm not surprised at all that this is happening. And again, you never want to see anybody lose their job, but when you're making moves like this and you're thinking about the future, 
certain things just need to be done differently and maybe they can't be done with or you don't think they'll be done the way you want them to be done with the people that you have there. So you have to find new people or give people that you think deserve a little bit more responsibilities, give them that responsibility. Now, there's not really a whole lot more about this as of the initial report and as of me recording this show. So while I never think it's, again, a good thing to see anybody lose their job, DC Comics knows that they can't just sit on their hands and do nothing, that something needs to be done, and they need to keep this momentum that they gained in the Rebirth era. And now that that's gone on for a couple of years now, now that we're very far into this, they do not want to see this go away. So, And, and I mean, you're, you're, you've seen some creative teams kind of change a little bit. You're seeing different people on different books, not necessarily getting rid of writers entirely and, and art teams, but you know, placing different people in different positions. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that either, so I certainly can't get mad about this. So we'll see how these changes actually go into effect. I don't think we'll know the full scope of this until a little bit later on in the year. So we'll see how well this actually does and see if we see any visible changes over at DC Comics. Here's something, again, I'm not surprised about at all, and I actually think that it's about time, and that's Deadline reporting that Resident Evil is going to get a TV adaptation on Netflix, because why not? Netflix has all these spare slots and spare time to make TV and movies, except they are making a ton of them right now. Here's the thing that'll make you happy if you love the movies, though. The German-based Constantin, and I believe that's how you pronounce it in the Germanic way, anyway, they worked on the movies. They're going to be the story. The, the they're going to be the studio that works on the TV show as well. No showrunner or anything just yet. But the report from Deadline actually says they may be attempting to expand the universe here a little bit and talk more about the inner workings of the Umbrella Corporation and the new world that's brought about by the T virus. Now, again, do you want to go in and do the same exact thing? that the movies were doing or continue the story that kind of ended in 2016 or at least, you know, seemed like it was at the point of ending. I mean, it was called the fight. It was called final chapter. Am I wrong? It was, this is it. So I think that this is something that's smart. And I always thought not that I didn't think the movies were good. I just always thought resident evil was more suited for TV or could certainly have more of a pop and long and more longevity. On television, and you know, there's no word if Mila Jovovich is going to be involved in this at all. I don't think it's probably going to happen. I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I know that there's supposed to be some sort of a, a another movie reboot of this. I mean, is that still happening? There's no word on that yet. I mean, should it still happen at this point? I'm not sure that it should. I'd let this live on TV, especially at a place like Netflix where. You know, you can pretty much do whatever you want. You can't just throw this on, say, like ABC or something and do it the way that it needs to be done. Let Netflix do what Netflix does. And that is allow you to have more freedom and a little bit more edge to tell the story that you want to tell. And maybe, you know, getting more into the inner workings of the Umbrella Corporation isn't necessarily a bad thing because you get that whole, you know, I don't want to say political intrigue, but but that's the best way that I could think to describe it. Is you when you get into the inner workings of anything like that and you start to see, you know, who the puppeteer is with the strings, you know, who's who's working those strings that are attached. 
And I think that that's always good TV and that's always good intrigue if it's written properly. So seeing Resident Evil go on to TV, not upset about that at all. I'm actually more excited about it than I would have been for the movie reboot anyway. So let's see how this goes. Got to get the right showrunner, though. So the CW continues to add shows to their pilot lineup. And this report by Variety, I'm going to just run these off really quickly for you. There's going to be a Jane the Virgin spinoff. There's also going to be... Katie Keene, which is the Riverdale spinoff, which is going to be the musical dramedy about the future fashion star, of course, and her friends trying to make it in New York City. Pretty much the same crew that's involved in Riverdale as far as showrunners and producers and writers are concerned there. And, of course, Berlanti being involved as well in his in his company. You also have Lost Boys, which, yes, is based on the cult classic film. It's going to be set in Santa Clara. Two boys are going to move back with their mother after the death of their father. You've got Heather Mitchell as the writer and executive producer there. You also have Nancy Drew, which we heard rumblings about. Now this has finally gotten a pilot order. It's going to be set in the summer after her high school graduation, so she will be 18 at the time. A tragedy kind of keeps her from leaving for college, and then she's thrown into a murder investigation. To me, this sounds very similar to the recent Nancy Drew comic that was put out by Dynamite. And if that's the case, I'm not mad at that because I thought it was a really, really great story. I think that Nancy Drew is the one that makes me excited the most, and that's probably because I'm not a huge Riverdale fan. Don't hate me for that. Don't at me for that. It's just not my cup of tea, and that's okay. I understand why people love it. I absolutely do, and I don't, I don't fault you for it. It's just not my thing. So while I still love Archie and the gang, and I still love the comics too, by the way, even the new ones, Riverdale's just not my thing, so don't at me for that, please. The, but it, to me, I like the idea of Nancy Drew. I think that that one could be a lot of fun, and I think it could be done very, very well. The one that I think might have the most legs on the CW, though, is the Lost Boys. You've got Vampire Diaries. You've got Legacies. You've got Supernatural, which can't go on forever, right? You've got a lot of stories like this that are very, very similar that have done very, very well on the CW. They know how to handle their vampire stories, and they know how to market these for their fans. I have no doubt at all that Lost Boys is going to work amazingly well by the CW, no question about it. But you got to think now, we've got Batwoman still coming as well. And even though they expanded into Sunday, they don't have a ton of programming slots available. So something's got to go. I mean, some things are going, but some things are really, really going to have to go. I mean, you could even break these up if you want to make them shorter seasons. I don't think that's a big deal either, but I, I, I'm worried about Legends of Tomorrow especially with the long delay, I don't think that that's going to last. I'm a little worried about Black Lightning. Not sure Black Lightning is going to last. Not because I don't think it's good, but because I'm just not sure that the numbers are there ratings-wise to keep it around. There's certainly plenty of other options. I mean, you got Crazy Ex-Girlfriend that's going to be ending on CW as well. There are there are things that are ending, so there will be slots available. But, ah, oh, man, I don't know. This, this seems like an awful lot of programming for not a lot of time. So unless the CW is going to be running, unless they're not afraid to air new programming during the summer, which we've seen a lot of networks are afraid to do that. Maybe if the CW says, you know what, we're just going to go year round because people love TV and they're going to want to watch it no matter what time of year it is. So if they do that, I could see this working. Otherwise, you're going to have to ditch some of your programming and, and just deal with the consequences. 
Let's talk about a trailer real quick for the boys from Amazon. Yes, this is based on the Wildstorm slash Dynamite comics by Garth Ennis and Derek Robertson. Basically, superheroes are corrupted by their celebrity and now being watched by a super CIA team known as the boys. So that's the gist that you really need to know in case you don't really know anything about it. You'll Google it anyway, so I'm not going to tell you everything. Now, you know that extreme violence and a lot of sex are a part of this comic. We see that a lot. In the trailer. So if you're wondering if this is going to be a faithful adaptation, I wouldn't worry about that so much. Especially Seth Rogen, who tweeted out the trailer. Huge fan of the book. You know he's going to want to see justice done for this. So I'm not worried about that at all. So we definitely get to see a lot of that. We get to see the seven all formed together. That's basically the Justice League of the story and the heroes that kind of help. I say kind of because they are corrupt heroes in a certain sense or at least their screw-up heroes is the best way that I could really put it. I don't really want to give too much away. But so we get to see them briefly. We certainly get to see them in their, you know, glamour shot sort of thing when they're all together. I want to know if we're going to get to see the history behind Compound Compound 5, Compound V, and what created their powers in the first place and how that had something to do with the Nazis. Maybe we'll dive into that. The biggest thing I'm looking forward to, though, is Carl Urban as Billy Butcher, the leader of the boys. I love Carl Urban anyway. I think this is going to suit him so well. I'm so ready to see Terror. I want to see Terror be a part of this. Terror's the dog, by the way. Really looking forward to that. And uh, I won't give away something that is actually uh, part of Terror's character. Not going to give that away. If you know the book, you know what I'm talking about. I want to see if that's going to be a part of the show. We get to see Huey a little bit in the trailer. He's actually one of the few that... That, that really speaks. So not a whole lot of information on what the story is going to be. Just a lot of action and a lot of, you know, crazy stuff happening. We'll just have to wait until the summer of 2019 to find out what's going to happen with the boys. It's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, time to dive back into the passage and talk to Shauna Babcock herself. Brianne Howie joins me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Liz Heldens, writer and executive producer of The Passage, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, we've talked about the show a couple of times. As a matter of fact, the last couple of weeks here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast, and her names came come up every time. So we just had to come, go ahead, bring her on the show. It's Shauna Babcock herself, Brianne Howie. Brianne, how you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing fantastic. Now, you're certainly no stranger, Brianne, to the horror genre with The Exorcist and Scream Queens, even Red Scare and a bunch of other stuff you've done. I mean, while The Passage isn't necessarily all about horror, what sets this show apart from some of the other stuff that you've worked on? Oh, interesting. I think The Passage, this show is really about humanity and connection. And I think that's kind of what's surprising everyone, that for a genre show, it has so much heart and it's really grounded in a family drama. I would totally agree with that. Now, and obviously I... the vampires. Oh, well, yeah. Well, then there's that, of course. <laughs> Now, when I, talk, when I talked to Liz Heldens last week, I told her that Shauna was probably the viral that actually creeped me out the most by far. Now, how did you approach playing the role early on, and how much did you know about where her story would be going? So I didn't know too much right off the bat. But as far as playing a viral, this is kind of the most fun part of it all, because essentially we just get to be animals, and that's not something you really get to do that often. So that's been really fun. Like, they're, they're these feral, wild animals who are in cells. 
Did you do anything specific to prepare? Because I know when I was talking to uh, someone who was on another show on another network who had was in a similar situation that actually watched like nature programming to get ready for the role. Did you do something like that as well? Or did you just kind of go into it differently? Yeah, you know, it's funny. So I went to NYU, I, I went to Tisch and I did Strasbourg there. And I remember throughout our acting classes, we would do these animal exercises. And you know, you'd have like 20 students on a stage, we were all assigned different animals. So there's like zebras, and giraffes and bears and lions and tigers. And I remember at the time thinking, when is this ever going to pay off? Like, why am I doing this? <laughs> and then lo and behold, I am now playing a viral on the passage and all of that animal work has come full circle. It's like how every kid ever felt about math. And then you get older and you go, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm still waiting for some of the biology to pay off. Well, yeah, then there's animal that. exercises. Awesome, awesome. Now we've seen early on that Shauna seems to kind of have her sights set on Clark Richards right now. Would you say that there's a reason for that? Yeah, absolutely. And and we go into all of that much deeper in episode three, but she's definitely, she's definitely taken by him. Um, she grew up kind of not really being able to trust anyone. So then she comes across Clark, they have this connection, and it really, um, it hits her deep. I've already seen the third episode, and it's, I'm, I'm busting trying not to talk about it. So that was that oh, was well have? that was well done in your part because I got to tell you I don't know if I'd be I'd been able to keep going. <laughs> okay, good. I it's know what's coming. You know, I haven't even seen episode three yet, so I'm very excited. Oh, it's it's a good one. Let me tell you that. Now let's talk about the last episode for a second. Let's talk about episode two and that bar scene for a moment with Babcock, Fanning, and Carter because I thought it was such a great scene. What was it like working with Jamie McShane and McKinley Belcher in that scene? And would you say that that was kind of a critical point for the first season as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. I love working with Jamie and McKinley so much. They're so incredibly talented and I was fans of theirs before I got to work with them. So for me, it's super exciting. You just kind of want to be a sponge around Jamie and he's so experienced and just kind of watch the way he works and just kind of learn from him. But that scene in particular was really fun because it was kind of film noir-esque a little bit and it's much slower than everything else time sort of stood still and that's fun to play with and when you're also doing these mindscape scenes you kind of get to play with immortality a little bit that's the one time the virals you really get to explore that Absolutely. We're talking to Brianne Howie, who of course plays Shauna Babcock on The Passage, which you can watch every Monday night at 9 o'clock Eastern on Fox. Now, Brianne, blood certainly isn't something anyone would choose for a beverage. So, you know, we see how the virals get fed on the show. So if you could have a supply of any food or drink delivered to you daily, what would it be? Delivered to me daily? Oh, God. I mean, I could eat Japanese food every day. All of it. Wow. See that? I mean, most people would say like pizza or something like that, but with Japanese food, really? Wow. <laughs> I think if I had, I've given this a lot of thought in the past. If I had to narrow it down, yeah, to one cuisine, I, I think it would have, yeah, all the fish options. I love tempura. I love meat. I, I like soy. I'm a, I like salty stuff. That's, that's an interesting choice. Speaking of food, though, when I was talking to Mark Paul <laughs> a couple weeks ago, he was talking about how when you guys sit down to lunch, when you sat down to lunch on the set, how some of the virals would st still be in their, their viral makeup. Did you actually experience that as well? Because he said, you know, it may be a little bit hard to eat around the set at times. Yeah, it's funny. You get so used to it being in the makeup. It takes so long to put on. It takes so long to get off. 
you you really live in it for a while. It becomes totally normal to you. And you'll try to have conversations with the ADs or ask people questions, and then people kind of jump around you, and you're like, oh, God, yeah, this is jarring for, for those around us. Now, again, as, as somebody who's kind of, I've cheated ahead, I've kind of looked ahead a little bit on the show. Now, do you feel like at this stage in episode two that Shauna is even aware of what she's fully capable of? No. And that's what's really exciting about episode three. Not only does, I mean, the audience gets to learn so much, but also Shauna learns so much about herself and, and what she's fully capable of. And that's kind of the product of a really fun scene between Fanning and Babcock, where he kind of sits her down and gives her this pep talk. Now, teasing ahead just a little bit as well, we are going to get to see Shauna's backstory before she came to Project Noah. Now, do you think this will actually change how fans feel about her once they see what she's gone through? I think so. Yeah, I would imagine. It's a heavy episode. But also, unfortunately, you know, it's not. It These things can be common. Actually, so we're going back to the uh, the effects on the show that we were talking about. Did doing this show and, and actually Shauna, playing Shauna, did that kind of give you even more of a new appreciation for the effects people that work on a show like this? Oh, my God. Absolutely. It's so impressive. And, uh, and we're really lucky because our team is incredible. And, and just it makes such a difference. It really can elevate a show. No doubt about it. And even the practical effects as well. I was talking to Liz and Mark Paul about that because you guys use a lot of practical effects, which, I mean, in 2019 is not that common anymore. No, no. I have to hand it to them. They did an incredible job. Whenever we could be viral in person and not in post, we did it, which is a lot more work for everybody. Um, But when you have such talented people, we all just wanted to make the most of it because we got to work with them. Absolutely. And it pays off, too. I'll tell you that right now. Again, when I was talking before about the show to Liz, I I kind of asked about the moral compass of Project Noah. And if those involved felt like they were doing the the right thing, like they were on the side of right in this. Now, from the perspective of the virals, though, do you think that they believe that they are on the side of right here with what they have planned? Absolutely. Um. Because it is a show about humanity. Everyone's trying to save someone, essentially. Uh, so, like, Sykes is trying to save the world. Richards is trying to save the experiment. Lear's trying to save his wife. And the virals are trying to save themselves, essentially. And the writers do a really great job fleshing that out. So even if you don't agree with everyone's decisions, you do start to understand where they're coming from. So do you think it comes from more of a place of survival and not necessarily anger or revenge, then? Would that be fair? Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Okay, let's talk about something else that happened in episode two. We saw that scene where Shauna kind of snaps on that douchebag worker guy that was at Project Noah that was harassing her in the last episode. So was that Shauna's temper getting the best of her, or was there a little bit more to it than that? Yeah, Shauna definitely has a temper problem. Fanning kind of calls her out on that. She's very passionate and very reactive. And she definitely, she grows, her arc throughout the whole story is so wonderful. She grows a lot, and you can kind of see her start to mature throughout it. But yeah, that's definitely Shauna Moore in her infancy stages. Well, in this process, as you talk about the character evolving, what is one of the qualities about Shauna that you feel like you've loved the most over these first 10 episodes of the first season? Oh, she's relentless. She doesn't give up. 
Yeah, that from what I've seen so far, that's absolutely 100% accurate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to say the least, and we'll get there. Brianna, before I let you go, how great has the fan response been so far from the passage? And, you know, every fandom has a name. So what do you think would be a great name for the fans of the show, of the pa- for the fans of the passage? Oh, my gosh. The response has been so exciting. Like, nothing makes us happier than knowing people are having as much fun watching it as we have shooting it. And I'm just so glad that the response has been so positive and it kind of makes you feel like this is resonating with people in the right ways. I don't know. I guess maybe I'd call them the passengers. Ah, yes, the passengers. I like that. I like that. That's a good one. They're in for a ride. Virals are just, it's just such a cool name, though. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, I know it's directly from the show, but, you know, calling themselves the virals, I mean, it's just, and it plays so well with Twitter and everything. It's It just worked. But the passengers, I like that. That that one might have some legs. <laughs> All right. So when you're using hashtag the passage, make sure you call yourself passengers. You know, let's just start that right now because Brianne said it. So we've got to do it now. So this is a thing. Oh, so when you're you. watching the passage every Monday, 9 p.m. Eastern on Fox, Make sure you're just tweeting the heck out of that. Watch it again as well, fox.com and the Fox Now app too. It's Brienne Howie, please Shauna Babcock on The Passage. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you so much. Guys, I'm going to tell you right now, there's a reason we had Brienne Howie on the show this week. You were not going to want to miss her sort of origin story, or at least her backstory anyway, on The Passage, 9 p.m. Eastern every Monday on Fox. This is a great episode of a show that just keeps knocking it out of the park every week. And that's why we keep talking about it. Can you blame me? Because it's been really, really good so far. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to the folks at Fox and Brianne Howie for joining me to talk about the passage this week. You want more about the passage, you could always go to our website, downandnerdypodcast.com, find out some of the past shows and past interviews from that show. And also, follow us on social media, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram, and facebook.com slash downandnerdy as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.